Section 13 of Men Like Gods. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Men Like Gods by H.G. Wells. Book 3 A Neophyte in Utopia. Chapter 1 The Peaceful Hills Beside the River. God has made more universes than there are pages in all the libraries of earth. Man may learn and grow forever amidst the multitude of his worlds. Mr. Barnstaple had a sense of floating from star to star and from plane to plane through an incessant variety and wonder of existences. He passed over the edge of being. He drifted for ages down the faces of immeasurable cliffs. He traveled from everlasting to everlasting in a stream of innumerable little stars. At last came a phase of profound restfulness. There was a sky of level clouds, warmed by the light of a declining sun, and a skyline of gently undulating hills, golden grassy upon their crests, and carrying dark purple woods and thickets and patches of pale yellow-like ripening corn upon their billowing slopes. Here and there were domed buildings and terraces, flowering gardens and little villas, and great tanks of gleaming water. There were many trees like the eucalyptus, only that they had darker leaves, upon the slopes immediately below and round and about him. And all the land fell at last towards a very broad valley, down which a shining river wound leisurely in great semicircular bends until it became invisible in the evening haze. A slight movement turned his eyes to discover Lichness seated beside him. She smiled at him and put her finger on her lips. He had a vague desire to address her, and smiled faintly and moved his head. She got up and slipped away from him past the head of his couch. He was too feeble and incurious to raise his head and look to see where she had gone but he saw that she had been sitting at a white table on which was a silver bowl full of intensely blue flowers, and the color of the flowers held him and diverted his first faint impulse of curiosity. He wondered whether colors were really brighter in this utopian world, or whether something in the air quickened and clarified his apprehension. Beyond the table were the white pillars of the logia. A branch of one of these eucalyptus-like trees Lee's bronze black came very close outside. And there was music. It was a little trickle of sound that dripped and ran, a mere unobtrusive rivulet of little clear notes upon the margin of his consciousness, the song of some fairyland Debussy. Peace. He was awake again. He tried hard to remember. He had been knocked over and stunned in some manner too big and violent for his mind to hold as yet. Then people had stood about him and talked about him. He remembered their feet. He must have been lying on his face with his face very close to the ground. Then they had turned him over and the light of the rising sun had been blinding in his eyes. Two gentle goddesses had given him some restorative in a gorge at the foot of high cliffs. He had been carried in a woman's arms as a child is carried. After that, there were cloudy and dissolving memories of a long journey, a long flight through the air. There was something next to this, a vision of huge, complicated machinery that did not join on to anything else. For a time, his mind held this up in an interrogative fashion, 
and then dropped it wearily. There had been voices in consultation, the prick of an injection and some gas that he had had to inhale, and sleep, or sleeps, spells of sleep interspersed with dreams. Now with regard to that gorge, how had he got there? The gorge, in another light, a greenish light, with utopians who struggled with a great cable. Suddenly, hard and clear, came the vision of the headland of Coronation Crag, towering up against the bright blue morning sky, and then the crest of its grinding round, with its fluttering flags and its disheveled figures, passing slowly and steadily, as some great ship passes out of a dock, with its flags and passengers, into the invisible and unknown. All the wonder of his great adventure returned to Mr. Barnstaple's mind. He sat up in a state of interrogation, and Lichness reappeared at his elbow. She seated herself on his bed close to him, shook up some pillows behind him, and persuaded him to lie back upon them. She conveyed to him that he was cured of some illness and no longer infectious, but that he was still very weak. Of what illness? he asked himself. More of the immediate past became clear to him. There was an epidemic, he said, a sort of mixed epidemic of all our infections. She smiled reassuringly. It was over. The science and organization of Utopia had taken the danger by the throat and banished it. Lichness, however, had nothing to do with the preventive and cleansing work that had ended the career of these invading microbes so speedily. Her work had been the help and care of the sick. Something came through to the intelligence of Mr. Barnstaple that made him think that she was faintly sorry that this work of pity was no longer necessary. He looked up into her beautiful, kindly eyes and met her affectionate solicitude. She was not sorry Utopia was cured again. That was incredible. But it seemed to him that she was sorry that she could no longer spend herself in help and that she was glad that he at least was still in need of assistance. What became of those people on the rock? he asked. What became of the other earthlings? She did not know. They had been cast out of Utopia, she thought. Back to Earth? She did not think they had gone back to Earth. They had perhaps gone into yet another universe, but she did not know. She was one of those who had no mathematical aptitudes and physical chemical science and the complex theories of dimensions that interested so many people in Utopia were outside her circle of ideas. She believed that the crest of Coronation Crag had been swung out of the Utopian universe altogether. A great number of people were now intensely interested in this experimental work upon the unexplored dimensions into which physical processes might be swung, but these matters terrified her. Her mind recoiled from them as one recoiled from the edge of a cliff. She did not want to think where the earthlings had gone, what deeps they had reeled over, what immensities they had seen and swept down into. Such thoughts opened dark gulfs beneath her feet where she had thought everything fixed and secure. She was a conservative in Utopia. She loved life as it was and as it had been. She had given herself to the care of Mr. Barnstaple, when she had found that he had escaped the fate of the other earthlings, and she had not troubled very greatly about the particulars of that fate. She had avoided thinking about it. But where are they? 
Where have they gone? She did not know. She conveyed to him haltingly and imperfectly her own halting and unsympathetic ideas of these new discoveries that had inflamed the utopian imagination. Crucial both had been the experiment of Arden and Green Lake that had brought the earthlings into utopia. That had been the first rupture of the hitherto invincible barriers that had held their universe in three spatial dimensions. That had opened these abysses. That had been the moment of release for all the new work that now filled utopia. That had been the first achievement of practical results from an intricate network of theory and deduction. It sent Mr. Barnstaple's mind back to the humbler discoveries of Earth, to Franklin snapping the captive lightning from his kite and Galvani with his dancing frog's legs, puzzling over the miracle that brought electricity into the service of men. But it had taken a century and a half for electricity to make any sensible changes in human life because the earthly workers were so few and the ways of the world so obstructive and slow and spiteful. In Utopia, to make a novel discovery was to light an intellectual conflagration. Hundreds of thousands of experimentalists in free and open cooperation were now working along the fruitful lines that Arden and Greenlake had made manifest. Every day, every hour now, new and hitherto fantastic possibilities of interspatial relationship were being made plain to the utopians. Mr. Barnstaple rubbed his head and eyes with both hands and then lay back, blinking at the great valley below him, growing slowly golden as the sun sank. He felt himself to be the most secure and stable of beings at the very center of a sphere of glowing serenity, and that effect of an immense tranquility was a delusion. That still evening peace was woven of incredible billions of hurrying and clashing atoms. All the peace and fixity that man has ever known or will ever know is but the smoothness of the face of a torrent that flies along with incredible speed from cataract to cataract. Time was when men could talk of everlasting hills. Today a schoolboy knows that they dissolve under the frost and wind and rain and pour seaward day by day and hour by hour. Time was when men could speak of terra firma and feel the earth fixed, adamantine beneath their feet. Now they know that it whirls through space, eddying about a spinning, blindly driven sun amidst a sheep-like drift of stars. And this fair curtain of appearance before the eyes of Mr. Barnstaple, this still and level flush of sunset, and the great cloth of starry space that hung behind the blue, that too was now to be pierced and torn and rent asunder. The extended fingers of his mind closed on the things that concerned him most. But where are my people, he asked. Where are their bodies? Is it just possible they are still alive? She could not tell him. He lay thinking. It was natural that he should be given into the charge of a rather backward-minded woman. The active-minded here had no more use for them in their lives than active-minded people on earth have for pet animals. She did not want to think about these spatial relations at all. The subject was too difficult for her. She was one of Utopia's educational failures. She sat beside him with the divine sweetness and tranquility upon her face, 
and he felt his own judgment upon her like a committed treachery. Yet he wanted to know very badly the answer to his question. He supposed the crest of Coronation Crag had been twisted round and flung off into some outer space. It was unlikely that this time the Earthlings would strike a convenient planet again. In all probability, they had been turned off into the void, into the interstellar space of some unknown universe. What would happen then? They would freeze. The air would instantly diffuse right out of them. Their own gravitation would flatten them out, crush them together, collapse them. At least they would have no time to suffer. A gasp, like someone flung into ice-cold water, he contemplated these possibilities. Flung out, he said aloud, like a cage full of mice thrown over the side of a ship. I don't understand, said Lichness, turning to him. He appealed to her. And now, tell me, what is to become of me? For a time, Lichness gave him no answer. She sat with her soft eyes upon the blue haze into which the great river valley had now dissolved. Then she turned to him with a question. You want to stay in this world? Surely any earthling would want to stay in this world. My body has been purified. Why should I not stay? It seems a good world to you. Loveliness, order, health, energy, and wonder. It has all the good things for which my world groans and travails. And yet our world is not content. I could be contented. You are tired and weak still. In this air, I could grow strong and vigorous. I could almost grow young in this world. In years, as you count them here, I am still a young man. Again, she was silent for a time. The mighty lap of the landscape was now filled with indistinguishable blue, and beyond the black silhouettes of the trees upon the hillside, only the skyline of the hills was visible against the yellow-green and pale yellow of the evening sky. Never had Mr. Barnstaple seen so peaceful a nightfall. But her words denied that peace. Here, she said, there is no rest. Every day men and women awake and say, What new thing shall we do today? What shall we change? They have changed a wild planet of disease and disorder into the sphere of beauty and safety. They have made the wilderness of human motives bear union and knowledge and power. And research never rests, and curiosity and the desire for more power, and still more power, consumes all our world. A healthy appetite. I am tired now, as weak and weary and soft as, as though I had just been born. But presently, when I have grown stronger, I too may share in that curiosity and take a part in these great discoveries that now set Utopia astir. Who knows? He smiled at her kind eyes. You will have much to learn, she said. She seemed to measure her own failure as she said these words. Some sense of the profound differences that 3,000 years of progress might have made in the fundamental ideas and ways of thinking of the race dawned upon Mr. Barnstaple's mind. He remembered that in Utopia he heard only the things he could understand, and that all that found no place in his terrestrial circle of ideas was inaudible to his mind. The gulfs of misunderstanding might be wider and deeper than he was assuming. 
a totally illiterate Gold Coast Negro, trying to master thermal electricity, would have set himself a far more hopeful task. After all, it is not the new discoveries that I want to share, he said. Quite possibly, they are altogether beyond me. It is this perfect, beautiful daily life, this life of all the dreams of my own time come true that I want. I just want to be alive here. That will be enough for me. You are weak and tired yet, said Lichness. When you are stronger, you may face other ideas. But what other ideas? Your mind may turn back to your own world and your own life. Go back to Earth? Lichness looked at the twilight again for a while before she turned to him with, You are an, you are an earthling born and made. What else can you be? What else can I be? Mr. Barnstaple's mind rested upon that, and he lay feeling, rather than thinking, amidst its implications, as the pinpoint lights of utopia pricked the darkling blue below and ran into chains and groups of, and coalesced into nebulous patches. He resisted the truth below her words. This glorious world of utopia, perfect and assured, poised, ready for tremendous adventures amidst untraveled universes, was a world of sweet giants and uncompanionable beauty, a world of enterprises in which a poor, muddy-witted, weak-willed earthling might neither help nor share. They had plundered their planet as one empties a purse. They thrust out their power amidst the stars. They were kind. They were very kind. But they were different. End of Book 3, Chapter 1